You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, help us to see Jesus. Remove our unbelief and help us to believe. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, please keep the gospel reading open as we uh, follow along as I preach. Now, there's been a lot of news in the, uh, a lot of talk in the news about invitations lately, uh, especially about the White House. Donald Trump's been inviting lots of people. But I I thought as a subject of the Queen, as an ambassador for the kingdom, that I I feel obligated to give you news from the kingdom, what's happening in the uh, empire. So if you haven't heard already, uh, there's a royal wedding coming up for Prince Henry, Prince Harry. Uh, He's going to be wed to Meghan Markle. And all the invitations have gone out to the 600 guests. So if you're lucky enough to be chosen, let me know because I'd love to come with you. But the invitations say... His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, requests the pleasure of the company of blank at the marriage to his, of His Royal Highness, Prince Henry of Wales, with Meghan Markle at St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle, on Saturday the 19th of May, 2018, at 12 noon, followed by a reception at Windsor Castle. Now, second only to the Iron Bowl, this is going to be the event of the year. <laughs> so make sure you check your mail. But in today's passage, we have another invitation, a couple of invitations. It's not a wedding invitation, but it is an invitation from a king. And we see this in verses 30 to 31. So look at them with me. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. These verses give us the purpose statement of the whole book. The purpose of this gospel that John has written is that you or whoever is reading it might believe that Jesus is the Christ and have life in his name. This is the lens through which we're meant to read this whole book. It wasn't just written as a history lesson or as a nice story. It was written to produce faith. It was written that you might be convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. It was written as an invitation. It's a very curious statement that John writes in verse 30 that Jesus did many other signs. The book of John is known as the book of signs. as many signs throughout it. But what are these other signs that Jesus did? What else can Jesus do? Well, John doesn't tell us. He doesn't go into that because they're not important. What is important is that this book points you to Jesus. This book acts as a sign itself. It's a sign that points you to your need for Jesus. It's like an invitation that points to something greater. When When you get an invitation, you know that something greater is coming, some sort of event, a wedding or a party. And in our passage this morning, John is inviting us to see what this invitation points to, that Jesus Christ is Lord and God, and that through belief in him, we can have life. 
invites us to believe in Jesus because he knows there is no one else through whom you can be saved. There's no one else in whom you have hope. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So John is inviting you to have faith, challenging you to believe, and through this faith, through this belief, to have life. And this is the challenge that is set before Thomas in verses 24 to 29. Thomas is a strange character. It was Thomas who was very confident of Jesus' mission in chapter 11. He was the one that would encourage the disciples to follow Jesus as he went to Bethany to, uh, to raise Lazarus. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. But ever since Jesus' death, uh, ever since the cross on Friday, that confidence that Thomas had is waning. Clearly and understandably, it's disappearing. And we learn in verse 24 that he's gone off by himself. He wasn't with the other disciples as Jesus appeared to them. But the other disciples have seen Jesus. And they're convinced that he's risen from the dead. And so when, they come, when Thomas comes back, they tell him that they've seen Jesus. But he still is unconvinced. He's just seen his master die on the cross. The one person that he thought would, that he put all his trust and hope in, that he thought would save the world, that he thought would redeem Israel, that person has died. And so, understandably, Thomas doubts. He doubts the other apostles and he needs proof. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's very easy to scoff at Thomas, thinking if, if we were there, it would have been different. You know, if I was one of the apostles, I would have worked out very early on who Jesus was. It wouldn't have taken me three years like some of those fools. I would have recognized him as soon as I saw him. On this side of history, it's far too easy to look down on those who are there. But how often do we require the same proof? I can't tell you how many times I reach for my phone when someone's talking to me, telling me something that I don't know yet, just to verify if what they're saying is true. If I haven't seen it with my own eyes, then it hasn't happened. If I haven't thought it in my own mind, then it doesn't exist. How quickly we become the Pharisee who prays, thanking God that he's not like the tax collector. Thank goodness I'm not like Thomas. I would have worked it out. I would have believed the apostles. Yet Thomas is so often who we are. We so often need that proof. I so often doubt the claims of the Bible and who Jesus is. Satan gets into my mind, gets into my head and casts seeds of doubt. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe he wasn't God. What if it's all just a lie? Well, proof is what Thomas wants and proof is what he gets. For only a week later, Jesus appears to him again when the disciples are gathered inside. And knowing that Thomas is doubting and unconvinced, Jesus invites Thomas to test the evidence. Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And at this proof, at seeing and feeling the scars that the nails and the spear had left in Jesus' body, Thomas believes. He confesses faith in Christ, saying, My Lord and my God. 
This is the cry of faith. It's not enough just to know that Jesus has died and risen again, but you must confess that he is Lord and God. Jesus is not just an idea that you can assent to. As one commentator says, Jesus is a person. He is God incarnate in human history. And in coming into human history, he has left marks that we can see and measure and trust. Notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas for his needing of proof. He's not worried about Thomas's doubts, but he invites Thomas to alleviate his doubts. He invites him to come and to touch and test and to taste and see that the Lord is good. I wonder if you have these doubts sometimes. I know I certainly do. But do you know that Jesus is not afraid of your scrutiny? It's not a bad thing to want proof for the Christian message. If Jesus is who he says he is, then these things demand proof. They demand that we investigate, that we scrutinize and see if they are true. The truth of Christianity is verifiable. Jesus was a historical person who had a public ministry, a public death, and who appeared publicly to many. As Paul says to King Agrippa when he was on trial in Rome in Acts 26, what I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I speak freely of them. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. The events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection were done before many witnesses and these things are attested by many. You can investigate them for yourself. And John wrote this book that you might be able to, that you would investigate these claims. And so here Jesus invites us like he invites Thomas to come and see. He calls us to reach out and touch, to test his claims, to believe that he has risen from the dead Friends, do not disbelieve, but believe. But we shouldn't all expect to have a Thomas experience. In fact, we can't anymore, because Jesus no longer walks on this earth. We can't meet Jesus in the upper room and touch him, as Thomas did. But God can work in whatever way he wants. So you may have a Damascus Road experience, where Jesus appears to Paul in a vision. But God's regular way of saving people, the normal way that we meet Jesus, is through the testimony of his people. It's through the preaching of the gospel. We see this all through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. It's through the proclamation of eyewitness accounts, which testify to the risen Lord Jesus, that we are invited today to have life in Jesus' name. If you want to meet Jesus, if you want to touch him, smell him, taste him, see what he's like, and pick up your Bible. For these are written that you might know him, written that you might see him and know who he is, know that what he has done for you. But maybe you're already a Christian and have taken up this invitation of life. Well, in verses 19 and 23, Jesus invites us with another invitation. In these verses, we read that the disciples are all gathered in the locked room. Obviously, the significance of the resurrection hasn't dawned on them yet because they, had, they haven't understood all that Jesus has come to do, that sin and death has been conquered and that through the resurrection of Jesus, 
death has been defeated. For if they had realized this, they would not have feared the Jews. They wouldn't have been in this locked room. But anyway, Jesus comes to them, he greets them and says, Peace be with you. Three times Jesus greets the disciples in this way. It's not just because he's a good Episcopalian passing the peace. It doesn't come just in a greeting of a tent saying, you know, I come in peace. But this is a reminder of the work that Jesus has come to do. It's a reminder of the work that Jesus has accomplished on the cross. It's the very essence of his work and why he has come. And Jesus makes this connection by immediately showing the disciples his wounds. The peace that Jesus brings was won for us on the cross. But what, what is this peace? Is it the peace that the beauty pageants want? Peace of the world? Well, Paul explains in Romans 5.1 what this peace is. He says, Since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace that Jesus brings is peace with God. It's the peace that enables us to have eternal life, life in Jesus' name. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, breaking our relationship with him, making us enemies of God, the question of the Bible has been, how can we relate with God? How can an unholy people relate to a holy God? This is why we have the book of Leviticus with all its regulations for sacrificing at the temple. God gave Israel a, a temporary measure for making an unholy people holy, that they might relate to God. But now God has come to us in Jesus Christ and made a way that we can be in relationship with God. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has repaired our broken relationship by taking upon himself the cost of our disobedience, the cost of our forgiveness. We can now relate with God. And through Jesus, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are now friends. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus has come. This is his mission. And in verse 21, Jesus invites us to make it our mission. He invites us to continue on his work, which he came to do, offering peace to the world. We are to go into the world and seek out the lost, because God has sought out us in Jesus Christ. We are to go to them because Christ has come to us. This is not a mission of making the world a nicer place, of doing good deeds, even though that's what we should be doing. Our mission is a message. Our mission is to tell the world of the peace that Jesus brings, a message that the world is desperate to hear. If the struggle of the Christian life is to become more like God, to become more Christ-like, then as we do this, as we become godlier, then this should be our mission evermore. Our commitment to this personally and as a church, to this mission, is a measure of our Christ-likeness, a measure of our godliness. For there is no other name in heaven and on earth through which people can be saved. Salvation is found in no one else and in nothing else. So will you join Christ's mission? I wonder if your God is too big. Often preachers and theologians will talk about having a God that is too small, too not powerful enough. But I think we often have a sense of God that is too big. 
What I mean by that is he's too distant from us. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't care about our problems. He's got bigger fish to fry. He's too holy. He's too far from us. He would never interfere with our world. But this is not the picture that we get in John's Gospel. Here we see a picture of a God that comes to us, who reaches out and touches us. A God that we can test and scrutinize. A God that comes into our world, comes into our history and interferes with our world. Who comes to accomplish peace with God. So if you, like Thomas, are doubting the claims that, uh, that people make about Jesus, that I've made about Jesus this morning, then I invite you to investigate them. Don't be afraid. Don't, don't worry that God will not be able to stand up to your scrutiny, because He can. Reach out and touch. Come and see that the Lord is good. But if you've already taken up this invitation, then will you take up Jesus' invitation to spread this message of peace? Don't be afraid like the disciples, locked in a room. Jesus is inviting you to go out, to tell the world, to tell the world that Jesus has come and given us peace with God. And he will empower us to do so by the power of his Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message of peace that Jesus brings. Father, when we are doubting, when we are disbelieving, please strengthen us to test, to scrutinize, to see that the Lord is good. Remove our disbelief and help us to believe that through Jesus' name we might have life, life everlasting. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.